Log Talk Radio. solutions-oriented talk show. Uh, Each month we dedicate about 30 minutes to uh, explore contemporary issues and solutions. Today we have a special broadcast where we're going to be on for two hours. Um, And these contemporary issues uh, today focused in New York City, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month we have uh, two very special guests with us. Uh, We have first, I'll introduce Liz Willen, um, who is the editor of the Hetchinger Report, the award-winning nonprofit website devoted to covering education in collaboration with news organizations across the United States. Uh, the Hetchinger Report, based at Teachers College, is four years old. Willen is a former senior writer focused on higher education at Bloomberg Markets uh, magazine, but spent the bulk of her career covering the New York City public school system for Newsday. Uh, she has won numerous prizes for education coverage and is a graduate of Tufts University and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She's also an active New York City public school parent. Welcome, Liz. We also have with us uh, Eric Nadelstern, graduate of Teachers College, master's degree in 1973. Um, Eric is a professor of practice in educational leadership and director of the Summer Principals Academy here at Teachers College. Among his many experiences serving New York City public schools, he was a deputy chancellor for the Division of School Support and Instruction for the New York City Department of Education from 2009 to 2011. Uh, Stern has been the author and the subject of numerous articles and interviews on his recent work, creating a critical mass of new small schools to increase student performance, establishing school-based autonomy as a school district reform strategy, to foster greater accountability for student achievement results and reforming central office operations in the largest school system in the nation. Um, Today, uh, our format will be, uh, shortly I'm going to turn it over to Liz, um, but we are uh, broadcasting live from from Teachers College on 120th Street uh, here in New York City. We have a live studio audience. And for those of you who are um, listening in, uh, we are uh, proud to have uh, over 5,000 listeners every month uh, at the Perkins Platform and to our new listeners around the country, we're glad you have joined us. Um, And we have also today uh, a a special treat, those of you who want to um, look in at us, we are live video streaming on Ustream um, at uh, ustream.tv slash channel slash the Perkins platform. So we're delighted for our live studio audience to be here, and we're sure that you will enjoy um, what uh, Mr. Nagelstern will have to share. And um, and so now I'm going to turn it over. Liz, uh, welcome. Oh, 
telling us, but we travel all over the country writing stories about education. Our stories appear everywhere from stealing money to the Atlantic to Time, they're on NBC, we're on we are public radio, amount of work here in New York City, but it's interesting. I, I began my career as a young reporter at, at a place called New York Newsday that sadly no longer exists. And I was assigned to cover schools in Queens. And one of my first assignments um, involved just trying to get into some schools and talk to be in classrooms and talk to teachers and principals to figure out what's going on because you really, that is the best way to understand what's happening in education. You have to be in classrooms. You have to be in schools. Easy, right? Well, in fact, I found out it was incredibly complicated. Every single principal that I talked to said you can't come or referred me back to a spokesperson at, at the old archaic 110 Living Street in um, Brooklyn, which is now really luxury, expensive apartments. But it used to be the headquarters where everything happened, and the only way you could get into a school was by getting permission from 110 Livingston Street. Until I met Eric Nadelstern, when I called International High School at LaGuardia, um, the principal answered the phone and said not only would he welcome me, but I could come the next day. Well, that was such exciting news and on, on a number of levels. Number one, it was exciting because I think I did show up the next day. And um, here was a principal who didn't want to sit in his office with me the whole time talking about how great he and his school was, but he let me in. We sat on classes, I met students, I met students who must have spoken, Eric, what, 40, 50, 60 languages? Uh, at the time, we had students from 60 different countries who spoke 40 languages other than English. And the school was the International High School at LaGuardia Community College, the first international high school in the city. Uh, you just can imagine how exciting that was on so many levels. How were they, how were they possibly managing to educate kids? Many of them had simply arrived like weeks or days ago. Um, to Kennedy Airport, and the next thing you know, they showed up at his school, and they were writing, and they were interesting, and I spoke with a lot of them, and we sh they shared some of their essays, and I, I think I went back several times since then, because it was, it, the, the place itself was interesting, so that was exciting. The other thing that was exciting was here I was actually in a classroom, in a school, and a principal was speaking to me, but then the other thing that was amazing was that Eric actually spoke very honestly about the problems he was facing, about how hard it was for some of these students, about the lives they left behind, about how you integrate so many languages in a classroom, about the struggles of overcoming poverty, about their issues with trying to graduate and learn new languages. And I pretty much fell in love with the education beat from that day and also decided I would really hang on to um, Eric as someone to talk to because he was very, very honest about what worked and what didn't work, and he spoke to me in plain language. He didn't use words like pedagogy. Sorry, I have this thing against jargon in education, and it's really hard. I'll keep that in mind this afternoon. <laughs> it's very hard to get around it. Um, so we spoke a lot, and, and that school was such an interesting place to be that I wanted to start our conversation with what you learned from there that, sort of in, that you integrated for the rest of the years, because that, if ever you could succeed with a population, it would be in a place like that in Queens. Well, Liz, thanks for that, that wonderful introduction. And, thanks for and, letting me into that school. <laughs> and I also want to, uh, want to thank you for being here. I, as I drove down today with uh, my wife, I imagine that the only people would be, who would be here on the nicest day since last fall would be people I was related to, uh, people I've known for uh, many years, 
of people who work with me or people who want to work with me. And as I look out over the audience, most of you don't fit into any of those categories, so I really do appreciate the fact that you're here. Also, I want to say a word about Liz. Uh, even before that really wonderful introduction, uh, Liz has always been my favorite education reporter in New York. He doesn't know any other education reporters. Uh, <laughs> to the contrary, uh, I've known the best of them. I, I, uh, I knew Fred Heckinger when he wrote for the Times. I remember Gene Maroff when he uh, started the Heckinger Institute. Uh, I know most of the education reporters here. What sets Liz apart is she's not simply fighting a deadline to hand in a story. She's doing it with a social conscience. And she's also a brilliant writer. So I, you can't imagine how thrilled I was when, uh, when she agreed to, uh, to spend this afternoon with us also the nicest afternoon since, uh, since last fall. So what did I learn from the school? Most of what I know about education I learned at the International High School. Um, my model for uh, being a principal and later uh, being a superintendent was principal and superintendent as lead learner. And uh, when I opened the International High School in 1985, I was fortunate enough to be able to recruit from among literally hundreds of people who had indicated to me by sending me their resume uh, that they were excited at the prospect of a new school on a community college campus serving uh, English language learners. Uh, I was able to attract uh, a terrific staff uh, and actually spent the next 17 years learning from them. Uh, the, the most important thing about it though uh, for me uh, I could describe in two ways. The first was understanding the power of collaboration and the opportunities that arise and the, the incredible work that can be done when you give bright motivated people the chance to meet together regularly during school time uh, to, to share their best ideas and insights and to work together around having common responsibility for a manageable number of students. Uh, I quickly figured out that I, despite my 13 years uh, as an educator in the system at that point, uh, and despite the fact that I had very strong feelings about how limited English proficient students needed to be taught, that I had an enormous amount not only to learn from each individual on staff, but that their collective knowledge together unleashed um, would result in new knowledge, that could not only inform the work in the school, but could actually inf inform the way English language learners were taught around the country. Second thing I learned then, because the first insight created a problem for me. If that's the role of the faculty, then what's the role of the principal? Uh, so it seemed to me the role of the principal wasn't to micromanage the staff and tell them how to do what they were doing better. The role of the principal as the only person in the school who didn't have a schedule uh, based on needing to be with kids at a particular point in the day, but I had the freedom to go around the school and uh, really take in and learn from what was taking place. My role became surfacing the problems we experienced as a community and then supporting uh, a very talented faculty in um, solving those problems uh, in a way that I could not have uh, if I were just doing it myself. Wait a minute, Eric, that sounds so simple. 
collaboration, working together, respect, teachers listening to the uh, principal, the principal learning from the staff, it sounds ideal. Why is that so complicated to achieve in New York City 20 years later? Uh, well, one of the things I learned the hard way when, when I try to implement uh, a similar approach uh, uh, with schools when I was chief schools officer was um, that despite modeling for principals that the more authority you share, the more influential you become, very few turned around and shared that authority with teachers. If I had to point to what I consider to be my biggest personal failure uh, in uh, my last seven or eight years uh, at the department, which was in various uh, positions of leadership at the central office, culminating in the deputy chancellor's position, uh, it's that I wasn't explicit enough with principals that uh, the only way they could be effective with, with all of their children was uh, by first empowering the teachers. Uh, and in fact, uh, that isn't what took place. And while I think we uh, had the hearts and minds of most of the principals, uh, most of the teachers in the system, one, didn't understand what was going on, and two, didn't support it. And when the teachers don't support the reforms that you're putting into place, they simply don't happen. Yeah, and that's been a story with so many reinventions. And it's funny how I often think back to international high school just because it seemed like a place that worked and possibly because everyone was willing to talk about it and, and take me places and show me. And, it's, and there's often so much secrecy, which is sort of shocking because we're talking about public education. And yet when you're trying to cover it as a reporter, it's astonishing how much people would prefer that you do not know. So I, I always use that and appreciate that in thinking about it. But what's really interesting is I thought about it again. When was the next time, you know, we kept in touch and I went on to cover really gigantic battles like Children of the Rainbow and um, Heather has two mommies and whether or not we should have condoms in schools and um, one ouster of one chancellor after next and protests. And it, it felt like for many years covering education in New York City was, was, co was about um, covering battles over sex education and politics and then mayoral politics and a lot of those, some of those issues are gone but the, the, the heavy political agenda remains. But the next time I, I went to visit you was another very, very interesting time in, in education and that was because not only were you involved in starting what I believe was um, the first public school that decided to switch and become a, well, okay, I don't want to get to the debate whether a charter school is a public school. We know that there's um, a lot of different nuances around that, but you decided to change your school into a charter school, and when I came to see you, you were furious and frustrated and were trying to turn in that charter. A lot has evolved with the charter school movement since then, but I thought that was a really, a sort of a turning point. Maybe you could explain a little bit about what happened there. Sure. Well, um, it was during the time when Rudy Cruz, Chancellor of the New York City Public Schools, I should mention that in my 39 years uh, with the Department of Education, I worked with uh, an under 14 different chancellors. Um, if you don't believe me, I can, I can cite, recite their names. No, 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 uh, it was impossible for education reporters to do anything but cover a chancellor search, it seemed, because it was one exactly. every six months. Yeah, well, uh, uh, in comparison, and it's important to understand this in, in terms of understanding the politics of New York City public education. 
In, in contrast, during that same period, there were only three presidents of the United Federation <laughs> of Teachers. So uh, longevity uh, turned out to be very useful uh, for the union, but not for the Department of Education. Um, so a good part of my career can be explained as trying to get under, out from under the supervision of other people. Uh, I don't know what it is about um, having a visceral reaction against authority. Uh, maybe it was something... That would make in, you a great reporter. Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe it was something... Uh, I, I am enjoying the blogging that I do these days. So. Um, uh, could go back to my childhood. Who knows? I, I uh, uh, have never chosen to either be psychoanalyzed or to psychoanalyze myself. But I have had that, that reaction against uh, being supervised in almost every instance. And so when... Um, when under uh, Rudy Crew, who's against charters, uh, the governor, uh, Pataki, passed a charter school law that allowed for charter school conversion, I was first online to convert my public school into a charter school. It was also to Crew's advantage to have us convert because he wanted to convince people uh, at this point that he wasn't really anti-charter, even though he had been before the legislation had passed. Uh, and so he was very supportive and promised me that as a charter school, I would not uh, have less resources for my school than I did as a, a, a district public school uh, leader. And uh, so for the first year, it was sort of okay. The state was somewhat intrusive, as I mentioned to Liz uh, recently. My first day as a principal of a charter school, the state sent down a monitor. And because they had no experience with charter schools before then, uh, they didn't have a checklist for, uh, for monitoring charter schools. They only had a checklist for monitoring failed schools. So the person who came down had that checklist. And um, was, I think, rather surprised, as, as Liz indicates she was some years earlier, when I opened up the school tour and said, listen, I'm, it's the first day of school. I'm going to be a little busy today. Uh, we've got to make sure that the kids and teachers wind up in the right place at the right time and, and the like. But you're welcome to walk around, go anywhere you like, and, uh, uh, and feel free to take notes and speak to anyone, teachers, uh, uh, students, uh, whomever you like. At the end of the day, she uh, walked into my office and said, uh, I don't like the way you answer your telephone. I think of all the things she could have said to me, that was probably the most surprising. Uh, and I said to her, why not? How do I answer my telephone? And she said, well, you answer by saying, hello, this is the International High School. I said, so that's the name of the school. She said, no, it isn't. From now on, you're the International Charter High School. So I turned to her and said, well, go back to Albany and tell the people who sent you that if you think I went through all the trouble to become a charter school so that you guys could tell me how to answer my telephone, you've got another thing coming. I, I wasn't as polite uh, as I am in uh, mixed company today. Um, uh, it only got worse as the year went on. Uh, the state was more and more intrusive. At one point, they took away a variance uh, that my school had from the previous uh, commissioner uh, to, uh, uh, to graduate students by portfolio rather than regents exams. And they did this mid-year, not exempting the students who were going to graduate in June. 
and so I did what any other self-respecting principal would do. Protest. I got a lawyer, uh, and I took the commissioner to court. Uh, I lost in lower court. Uh, I lost in appellate court. Uh, and sure enough, the students graduating that June had to pass uh, two regents exams, one in math and one in English, despite having had a variance for the previous three and a half years. Uh, we pulled out all stops and tutored round the clock uh, what these days is known as test prep, I guess back then it was as well. Uh, and uh, that June, with a graduating class of 90 students, 11 students failed to pass both exams. Uh, we then um, uh, found some resources to offer intensive support over the summer, and I'm pleased to say all but one student was able to pass by the end of August. Uh, from there on in, by the way, the tenor of what took place at the school changed, whereas you used to hear student voices resonate everywhere uh, you looked while class was in session. I walked down the hall and hear teachers' voices uh, boom out from every classroom. Uh, so what really put me over the edge was when uh, we, we got a new chancellor, a guy named Harold Levy, uh, and I was told that the commitment uh, that we would have the same resources as charter school was only a one-year commitment. You know how the Department of Ed and the old Board of Ed used to pull that on people? Uh, change the rules simply to fit the, their uh, political circumstance at the moment, uh, and that uh, I was going to sustain a 40% cut in the resources I had, and quickly realized I couldn't support uh, the faculty who had uh, supported me in going into uh, a territory uh, that no one had ever uh, been in before, and that my commitment was to them uh, and to make sure uh, that I would make them whole. Uh, and uh, petitioned Harold Levy to let me back as a public school, and his response to me was, sorry, bud, it's a one-way street. Uh, fortunately, uh, the executive director of Pensable, a woman named Ruth Cohn, who is now uh, the head of education for uh, the um, Museum of Natural History, uh, sent me Harold's wife to be my principal for a day, and within a week, uh, we were admitted back into the public school fold. Uh, not only were we admitted back, but we were admitted as our own district, which meant, astonishingly, that I had an extra $650,000, which would have been the district cut for micromanaging us, uh, that I could then use to hire more teachers, buy better supplies and materials, and ultimately provide our students with a better education. That's amazing, Eric, but I'm wondering, and because I, I really remember writing that story, and it was at a time when the word charter school was really new, and I, I was trying to understand it. I couldn't understand why you wanted in. I could understand why you wanted out. I, I was just dying to figure out what this whole charter thing meant, and it's very interesting because now I find so often people will say, still say, I don't know how to think about charter schools. And right now in New York, as you know, the debate is so charged, and sometimes it becomes, how surprising, a personality debate, Bill versus Eva, um, you know, just back to politics and divisiveness. Can you help use any of the early lessons you learned about charter schools to help us understand the current battle right now in New York? 
So let me say that the, the battle around education is never about how can we best teach long division to our third graders. Often seems it's never even about children. It's, it's, you're right. It's a $25 billion enterprise. There's an enormous amount of vested adult interest. Uh, some of that vested adult interest is positive. You know, for instance, the better the system treats teachers, the more likely it is uh, they will turn around and uh, give all of themselves to their students, which is uh, what the system asks of them. Um, and some of it is uh, to turn a profit at the expense of children, uh, and some of it is for uh, personal or group advancement. Rarely is it around the children. I support charters for the following reason. Um, education is a monopoly around the needs of adults, around the needs of the people who teach in our schools, around the needs of the people who lead our schools, around the needs of the people in, in, at Central who, uh, who uh, have hard-earned bragging rights about being able to micromanage schools, around the politicians, and around the business people who make a living from our schools. And as Liz said, it's never about the children. And there's nothing that can break through that monopoly as well as creating choice and competition. I think choice and competition is critical. Um, I'm um, a, um, an old uh, uh, Marxist at heart. Uh, I will admit that to you now because uh, because we live in a time in America where, uh, uh, where there's little stigma attached to that. Uh, but despite feeling uh, that the country could do a much better job uh, more equitably distributing its resources to, uh, to the people uh, living in it, uh, not to mention the folks beyond our borders, uh, despite that, uh, I do believe that choice and competition breeds innovation. Uh, and that the current school structures we have and the current way of thinking about the classrooms uh, we're in um, simply don't take advantage of the fact that we live in a completely different time when most students have access to more information outside of school than they do in classrooms. Uh, and anything that breaks through the traditional way we have of thinking about the work we do I think is critical, and I think charter schools are one of those strategies. Just not that we're not as they were designed in that case. Do you have a question? Uh, no, I just want to um, jump in for those of you who are just joining us online. Uh, you've reached the purchase platform, and we have a special broadcast today with uh, Eric Nadestern and Liz Willen. Um, we're discussing uh, lessons of New York City public schools in the recent. Uh, manuscript by Mr. Nadal Stern entitled 10 Lessons from New York City Schools. Uh, in about a half an hour, we're going to start taking calls and taking uh, questions from uh, the live studio audience. Uh, that number for call in in about a half an hour is 347-826-9029. Again, 347-826-9029. And so we have Liz Willen, who is uh, uh, moderating this discussion talk with uh, Mr. Nadal Stern, I'll turn it back over to Liz. Um, before I jump into the current Carter situation, in, which I'd really like to in New York City, it always astonished me, the next, the next career move that you made, that you were deeply, deeply involved and became the number two person in, in the Bloomberg administration and uh, under Joel Klein. 
And it was a complete revamp of our system at that point. Mayoral control, that was when they started turning the old 110 Livingston into those luxury condos, everything over at Tweed Courthouse, um, a whole new breed of, of MBA types with their Blackberries, the word accountability in every other sentence, um, a wholesale change, wholesale differences um, that actually ended up pissing off a lot of teachers and a lot of parents. And as a journalist who used to stand for hours at not only at local school board meetings, and sometimes I remember in the Rockaways until one or two in the morning, simply so that they would honor the open meeting law and allow journalists to listen and allow the public to speak. And also the many, many hours I spent outside those now lovely luxury condos waiting at the public information session so that everybody could have their say and I could hear what, what parents had to say, what teachers had to say. There was sort of a, a healthy debate part of this thing we know of known as democracy. Lots of questioning, questioning of authority, questioning of the school board. Then suddenly that disappeared under, in, under the Bloomberg era. There was no more public information um, sessions or places where people could speak. It seemed like the board that he appointed was pretty much a rubber stamp. And this was a mayor and a chancellor who were going to have their way. Um, how did you fit into that? Well, it surprised me as well, Liz. Um, let me say that um, the, the reason I went down to Tweed uh, in 2004 um, was I had spent several years as uh, superintendent of new and small Bronx high schools uh, where we began uh, phasing out large low performing schools, schools where barely 30% of the children were graduating, uh, primarily high schools, uh, and replacing them with campus communities of new small schools. Uh, I'm a, uh, a deep believer, uh, back from my early days at International High School, uh, in the power that small schools can have to make a difference in the lives of children. Uh, when you interview dropouts uh, and uh, you ask them, why did you drop out of school? The chief reason they give is because no one in the building knew who they were and they didn't even know they were gone. Uh, that, that's less likely in a small school where, uh, in most instances, every child is known well by at least some of the adults who work in the building. So, as deputy uh, superintendent for Bronx High Schools, we wound up closing seven large, low-performing high schools. In one of the schools, 900 students were held back the year before we closed it. Uh, 1,200 were in the freshman class. 900 freshmen were held back that year, three-quarters of the students they admitted. In another, um, only 20% of the students made it to junior year. Uh, in the third, 18 or more, 1,800 uh, students had 20 or more absences by Christmas. Uh, in yet another, there were 1,700 kids enrolled, 1,200 uh, were uh, freshmen. So you could get into the school, you just couldn't get past ninth grade. These were factories that were destroying generation after generation of, of children. And this wasn't just for the prior few years. This had been going on in some instances for decades. When I was a high school student, longer ago than I care to, to mention, um, the first school with 900 uh, students that 
that were held back uh, the year before we closed it was known as a bad school. And it remained so for over, over 40 years. Uh, the reason I came down to the Department of Education is I first came down as Chief Academic Officer for new small schools. I had a way of engaging teachers and community organizations to come together uh, to come up with uh, powerful proposals to open new schools and then uh, some experience with how to support them to open really good new schools. And so I started at the department as, uh, as chief academic officer for new small schools. Um, when um, the principals who had opened the initial schools came back to us and said, you know, you charged us with reinventing school for ourselves and our children, but you placed us under the same district regional leadership that had always existed, and every time we try to do things differently, we're given every reason in the book why we need to do it in exactly the same way as the failed schools that you closed. So I put together a proposal uh, for the chancellor to create something called the autonomy zone, and the idea was pretty simple, really. It was schools participating, weren't going to be called out uh, during the regular school day, not the principals and not the teachers, for meetings at Central. You know how often those take place if, if you work in a large urban school district. When I was a principal, it felt like I was out one day a week. Um, uh, I know my students now, uh, the students in our Principals Institute at Teachers College, uh, had to miss something like seven or eight days of school this year because of events scheduled uh, by Central. Uh, our position was, while the kids are in school, you've got to be there as well in the classroom. We're going to have one meeting a month. It's going to be after school. We're not going to spend lavishly and provide dinner. In fact, we're not even going to provide coffee. Uh, bring your own. But what we are going to do is we're going to let you set the agenda. You don't have to come, but if you want to come, it's your agenda. It's an opportunity to meet with some like-minded schools and to share some of your concerns and also learn from some of their accomplishments. And month after month, everyone showed up. Uh, at the end of that year, we started with 29 schools, 26 uh, district schools, three charter schools. At the end of that year, all of those schools together outperformed the system. More importantly, each had outperformed themselves a year earlier. So the chancellor let us grow. The second year, we grew to 48, and once again, found similar results. The third year, he let us go out to the whole system and ask principals, if you want to be part of this, you can volunteer. We'll take you out of your superintendent structure in the region, uh, and you can be part of something called the autonomy zone. Now, the autonomy zone did hold principals accountable for, uh, for what happened to their students. Uh, they all signed performance agreements, holding them accountable to higher standards of student achievement than we'd ever been able to contractually obligate. And miraculously, getting out of the way of the schools, the schools met those standards. Um, our job wasn't to micromanage them, it was to keep the other parts of Central away from our schools so that principals and teachers could focus on what happened to kids. That year we grew to 321, the next year to 535. Within five years, the entire system tipped over to, uh, uh, to uh, autonomy. Autonomy became rebranded as empowerment schools by those 20-something-year-old uh, MBAs from, uh, 
from Harvard and Yale and, uh, uh, and Columbia. And uh, uh, within five or six years, the entire system uh, was, was similarly empowered. What I discovered, interestingly, was when I was railing against the system and trying to dismantle it, that was fun. When I was then appointed Deputy Chancellor and Chief Schools Officer, and my job was to manage the day-to-day -day for 1,700 schools and the crises that arose uh, uh, each day, and there were more than a dozen uh, crises that would cause your hair to stand up on end on the basis of uh, crazy things that you read about in the paper every day that I was actually charged with dealing with, that became a lot less fun. Uh, and that's when uh, I started looking around and uh, found this announcement for a position at Teachers College that, found, that felt uh, as if it, were, it, it was written for me. Uh, the administration changed and it was easy to leave. So what happens to all of those schools now? I'm trying to figure out where that fits in, in the, with, the, with the new chancellor who spoke this morning here at Teachers College. Didn't really come up, although she does use the words autonomy and empowerment a lot. But then again, as I said, there's an awful lot of jargon that gets used in education and there's a lot of confusion about what it means. So what happened to all those big, gigantic, failing high schools? Where are they going to, what's going to happen to them now? A lot of them are smaller. The graduation rates, as you said, did improve. Well, well, the chancellor did at one point, I don't know if the, she still intends to do this, but she did at one point say that she intends to reopen large schools. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, because uh, the graduation rate over the last 10 years has increased by 30% from 50% where it had been frozen for more than half a century to now two-thirds of the kids are, are graduating. Yes, yeah, so let's be clear, small schools weren't a panacea either. There were a lot of problems with many of the small schools. They weren't a panacea, but the graduation rate aggregately of the small schools is 77%, which is what I think brought the graduation rate up to uh, uh, 66 from, uh, from 50 percent. Well, it's important uh, to boost the graduation rate, but did, were these kids coming out really prepared? Were they ready to co for college or were they landing in remedial education and community colleges where more than 70 percent do? And point well taken, but I think, I think the point is that there was some progress made, but the hard work is ahead of us. Uh, students are not being prepared at the level they need to be. I'm not sure we ever prepared students to the level uh, they needed to be. Certainly when I was a high school student, you could graduate from high school without passing any exams. Uh, you just had to uh, uh, pass your courses. So the difference really isn't in uh, whether once upon a time students knew more than they do now. The difference is these days you can't survive unless you graduate from high school with the capacity for some form of post-secondary education. And so the bar has been raised steadily since the 1970s, and, and we need to do a better job than we ever have done. What troubles me now is the policies that I hear are seemingly disconnected. I can't see an overarching plan that moves us from where we are to universal high school graduation. I don't see the department reaching out to people from all over the country who represent the best minds in education and beyond to solve the most intractable public policy question of our times. How do we graduate all of our youngsters so that they can reach the highest level of their potential? I don't see that happening. 
until I see that happening, uh, I'm, I'm going to worry uh, about the current circumstance. But I will say this. Uh, the Ch Chancellor Faringia has no stronger supporter than I am, uh, primarily because I understand that her success means that schools and children will be successful. And so despite the fact that I, I see my role in part as being a critical voice outside the system, uh, uh, speaking to, uh, to uh, what I think might be wrong at a given point in time, uh, I'm rooting for her because if she succeeds, we all succeed. Well, one of the things that was interesting about her appointment was her remarks when she um, took the job saying that she wanted to bring back joy to the New York City Public Schools, which was a very joyful thing to hear, especially in a culture that's become increasingly test-obsessed. But there are two ways that she's, uh, two things that she's going to do, one of which she doesn't have much choice of, and that is the, the move to the Common Core Standards, which is really changing teaching and learning, also creating a lot of headaches and a lot of anger, both in teachers and, and administrators. And you might have noticed that this week there were quite a few protests um, superintendents, um, sorry, sorry, school principals and teachers are openly discussing their dismay with the fourth grade ELA exams and with new ways of teaching. And um, this is a sort of a sea change. Now, there's nationally, there's talk about that this is an absolutely necessary way to boost those graduation rates and to make the U.S. more competitive with other countries. But there's a whole, uh, a whole new emphasis on this that she's going to, that she has to deal with. How, how do you see that playing out? Sure. So, not coincidentally, the, uh, the people who were part of the protest, Liz Phillips, uh, who wrote the op-ed piece in the Times. And She's the principal of um, PS321 in, in Park Slope, one of the most sought-after and successful elementary schools in the city. And others, Liz and others, were uh, the others who were on the protest lines were, in fact, the people who started the autonomy zone. So, uh, so that's not a fact lost on me, and I... I, I I, I do appreciate it, and I like the fact that they're out there protesting. Um, here's, here's my sense of uh, the Common Core curriculum, and I'm going to back up first and say uh, the old memorization model uh, upon which most uh, K-12 education is based in this country uh, is outdated and outmoded uh, and has no place in the information age. Uh, students need to graduate from high school knowing how to think and knowing how to learn, not memorizing a bunch of disconnected bits and pieces of information that they're likely never to use over the course of their lives. Um, I had that, that type of high school education and I would not wish it uh, upon anyone and don't consider that my high school education made me a well-educated person when I left high school. I think it was probably halfway through college uh, that I began to understand the kinds of things that I needed to know, and hopefully I'm still learning those things. Um, the change that needs to take place is to move away from, if it's Tuesday, it's chapter six, uh, read this chapter, answer these questions, memorize this poem, uh, write this three-paragraph composition, to uh, a situation where instead of having the teachers do all the work from the front of the classroom, uh, kids in schools are, have the opportunity to pursue their interests in ways that allow them to follow their curiosities, allow them uh, to develop their interests, and allow them to learn 
um, how to think uh, and how to be contributing uh, adult citizens of of, uh, of our uh, of our country and the world. Uh, th that's not what we're doing in schools. It's the way we think sometimes about early childhood education, but even that is being pushed out by uh, they've got to learn to read faster than uh, we normally would ask them to do. They have to learn how to write. They have to learn the names of the seven continents and, and the like. Um, the Common Core, in, at its most basic, is an effort to move from a rote memorization transmission model of learning to getting kids to think more deeply about the things they engage with. Uh, the problem with the way it's being able to, the, the way it's rolled out, and I think you'll see uh, the roots of this kind of thinking in the things you've learned about my career this afternoon, is a superintendent can't turn around and say to schools, here's the common core, that everyone has to implement it in this way. Because everyone in this room and everyone who's ever been in a classroom knows when teachers close that classroom door in the morning, they're going to do everything they need to do to make sure that their kids learn and they get through the day. Uh, and it's got nothing to do with what the superintendent's latest memorandum was or what the chancellor's regulation was or what the principal's priority was. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of duality of what's happening at the political level of education and what's happening day to day in classrooms. The trick isn't to ignore that. The trick is to take advantage of that. So I think the message needs to be it's your decision once you close that door in the classroom. But really, why not open the door and let your colleagues know what that decision is? Because they could benefit from knowing about it. Well, that all sounds reasonable, but one of the things that the teachers have been so angry about is that they're going to be assessed and judged by the test scores of their students on tests that they feel they haven't had adequately, not, have they not only adequately, not been adequately trained to teach them, but um, these tests have been described as just everything from really awful to soul-sucking. Yes. Yeah, and, and I don't disagree. I mean, at an earlier stage of my career, uh, Liz did mention, she mentioned everything from about 11th grade on, but at an earlier stage, I was a co-founder of the New York Performance Standards Consortium, because I get that. I understand the weakness of tests. Um, let, me, let me first quickly answer the question about the core curriculum, and then I'll come back to the test. The, the thing about the core, what could have made the core powerful and effective is if Central and other districts would say to their schools and their teachers, here is something we think you and kids can benefit enormously from. The schools that want to play with this, that seem some potential, here are some resources that other schools won't get that we will make available to you to use to, to figure out the best ways you can use this to accomplish the things you'd like to see your children do. And then the job of Central is to learn from that, identify the successes in a way that hopefully generalizes them across schools. That's not what happened. What happened was what traditionally happens. We don't trust superintendents. We don't trust principals. We don't trust teachers. We don't trust students. We don't trust parents. We're going to tell you how to do it better. And that never works. Getting to the testing issue. Uh, we do live in an age of accountability. The public is spending $25 billion of its hard-earned money to educate 1.1 billion children. It's a quarter of the city's entire budget. Taxpayers, parents, politicians have the right to know 
what we're doing and why we're doing it, and what we're achieving as we're doing it. We have to figure out good ways to assess what we're doing. When I was principal, the best way I could think of was peer review. Uh, my school teachers evaluated other teachers. Today, things have to be a bit more quantifiable. So what I will say is that even though the exams 10, 20, 50 years from now, the assessments are going to be much better than they are today. And we're going to look back and say, this was terrible. How could we do such damage uh, to children and to schools? How could we expose anyone to them? We can't get away from the fact that, the, that some form of assessment has to be used, that we need to put pressure on the, the test makers and others to develop the best assessments possible. We've got to allow schools to customize those assessments, and we have to evaluate each of our teachers, each of our schools, each of our principals. But those assessments can involve tests, they can involve peer review, they can involve supervisory evaluations that can involve um, uh, self-evaluations and that when they do involve all of those, they can involve parent and kid evaluations and when they do and in ways that each school can begin to define for themselves with uh, parameters emanating from central, then I think people will embrace them more, they'll work toward them and they can be the kind of metric that allows us to grow uh, as a result of it, rather Eric, than feel fearful. that sounds great, but that's not happening. Talk to Pearson. I mean, I, how do we how do we get those kinds of tests? I get that it's not happening. I think I think uh, giving one publisher a thirty million dollar multi year contract is foolhardy. I think we ought to create choice and competition among the test publishers as well, and we've got to be a lot smarter and a lot more demanding, uh, and that the demands have to come from the teachers in classrooms and the principals in schools and the parents, not from politicians at Central or beyond Central. Well, in the meantime, a lot of, what, a lot, what a lot of parents are doing is opting out, and I think you're going to see that, that growing if this isn't addressed. How do you feel about that? Uh, you know, I can't criticize those people. Uh, parents have to do what they feel is in their students' best interest. I actually don't think it's in the best interest of youngsters uh, to decide not to expose them to exams, even uh, exams that aren't as good as we think, uh, because they will be facing them uh, throughout their uh, careers. Uh, I, I do think at the same time they're exposed to that. Uh, those exams should not be high stakes for children. That is, take them into account, but take into account a, a wide set of measures. The department recently began moving in that direction, uh, but did so in a way that I can't support because essentially they said uh, no more exams, multiple measures, but they didn't define what those measures were in a way that... using the word holistic which sounds like something I would get at the Park Slope Food Co-op. What do you think they're talking about? Well, I would prefer to say multiple measures. Uh, that is, allow the people who know the kids' names, who know the kids' families, who know the communities they come from and go, and go home to each evening, uh, and who know each child well to make the determination, but insist that this is the framework that you're going to use to make that determination, and that the framework has to allow for considerable voice from the people who know the kids best. Uh, it's, not what the, it's not what we did uh, in my administration. Uh, it's, uh, and I'm sorry we didn't, 
the first thing the Chancellor said to me is that what he had against me was uh, my positions on testing. I suspect we still don't see eye to eye on testing, although I will say now that you can't hold 1,700 schools accountable for the success of children unless you use standardized tests in some way, but that the system and the politicians then have an obligation to put pressure on test makers to make the tests better, and in the meantime, make sure that they don't represent the overwhelming um, uh, way in which uh, students are evaluated or teachers. Let's go back to your students at International High School, the ones that, you, that ended up, most of them failing the regions until you put huge amounts of resources into just getting them to pass. Would there have, couldn't there have been a better way? I mean, you, you tried. Well, at International, uh, students graduated by portfolio. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, my sense of that now is there are now 30 some odd portfolio schools doing a for the most part, doing a good job of graduating by portfolio. Uh, Which means they don't have to take the Regents exam. That's right. But those schools, but the students do have to produce the best of their work that is evaluated in a rigorous way to determine whether or not they graduate. Uh, before you could implement that in 1,700 schools, because sad to say in many schools, uh, the staff is not as uh, effective or even as conscientious as they are in those 30 schools. Uh, portfolios are a lot of work for teachers and for people who work uh, with teachers. That until you can spread that to 1,700 schools, you need a strategy for doing that. And the portfolio schools have never developed a strategy for doing it for more than a, a precious few schools. I think portfolios ought to be a central part of how you evaluate students, but I also think that you need to standardize test exams at the same time. Uh, I wouldn't say that the tests ought to outweigh the portfolio. I know you want to take some other questions, but I, I also want to bring it back to something a little bit more basic because you've really had this experience um, on many levels in New York City public schools. And this is not just a New York City school issue, but nationally it's probably one of the biggest debates that we have here, um, no matter how we go about it, is how we overcome the role of poverty in schools and how we close the achievement gap. And every single chancellor will We'll talk about this, but when you're talking about 10 lessons from New York City public schools, how, what have we actually learned about this? That, that, that what, what really works? So many of these issues, so many of those schools that you talked about, those large schools in the Bronx are filled with children who come from homes with in, seemingly intractable problems. Well, I'm a lifelong Bronx resident, and, uh, and even though the, the Bronx is beautiful this time of year, uh, plenty of parks and trees and uh, uh, wonderful places that most people don't associate with that borough. Uh, there's also an enormous amount of uh, economic deprivation. Uh, it's the poorest congressional district in the country. Uh, so, so I understand where you're coming from. Here's, here's the dichotomy I see in the way people think about this. Uh, educators, and, and for a long time I included myself in this, in this uh, position, I am still an educator and I'm a teacher at heart and the opportunity to be a teacher's college at this stage of my career and, and go back to what I love teaching is um, uh, an opportunity I can only wish on everyone. I'm, I'm extremely fortunate uh, in that respect. But um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the thing the profession has not distinguished itself around 
is the belief set that we can't help children until we end poverty in this country. Because the reality is we're not going to end poverty until schools do a, a damn sight better than we've done with everyone's children. Uh, and the, the, as a teacher, as a principal, as a superintendent, uh, to say to parents, your kids are poor and until some invisible force comes in and waves their magic wand and, and, and uh, uh, reduces poverty in the country, we're not going to be able to educate your children, is, is an unthinkable thought for educators. What we need to do is educate children regardless of the fact that many come from poor homes, that many come from places where uh, they don't have a place to study in the afternoon, where parents are uh, too busy uh, trying to figure out how to put a meal on the table that evening to worry too much about how their children are doing in school. But also, it's a myth to think that poor parents don't care about how well their kids do in school. They do. Uh, so poverty can't be used as a, uh, an excuse for why we as educators and the schools that we populate aren't doing a better job with children. So I do, I do understand that poverty is pernicious, but it's not determinate. We've seen schools where there are poor children do a remarkable job with children, blocks away from schools with children who fit the same profile who aren't doing a great job. We've got to figure out how to take what the great schools are doing despite poverty and make it possible for all schools to be, be able to do that. Uh, quite honestly, I don't see that taking place in, in large urban districts, this one or others around the country. Are you uh, saying there aren't great schools to learn from? There are great schools to learn from, but there are no great school districts. Uh, you know, I've suggested that the model of education is off. The model of how we manage schools uh, is not going to get us to the point where we can incorporate some of the things we already know about how people learn best into our schools. Uh, we've got to figure out how to get beyond school districts because it's the wrong model. Uh, and uh, somewhere in my book, I think around chapter nine, uh, I describe that in some detail. Um, uh, the district is not the solution, it's the problem. You know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't meet somebody in the course of covering education who thinks they have the solution. It might be the KIPP school network, no excuses. It might be Eva Moskowitz who believes her Harlem network of schools is, is, does, does such a superior job to New York City public schools and she'll cite the test scores. Or it might be the uh, many entrepreneurs I'm meeting at conferences who are rolling out new technology and blended learning and say that's going to solve the achievement gap. Um, everyone seems to have some kind of an idea of this new model that's going to work or, or maybe even a new, a, a new leader or a new schools chancellor. Joel Kleinfeld for a long time talked about how he had the answers and, and it was part of your job to see if those answers were going to actually work. No, it was actually part of my job to create the data that he could use to make sure that he could back it up with, uh, with uh, some success in the schools. Uh, and I do share a lot of Joel's beliefs uh, uh, and we also have differences. I don't have the answers. Uh, I, I've spent my adult life taking some solace in Thurber's admonition that it's better to know some of the questions than have all the answers. Uh, I do think we know a lot about the direction things ought to move in, uh, why we're not applying what we know, and why we're not attracting people across a variety of different disciplines to help us solve uh, a problem as complex and as important uh, to the uh, 
to the well-being of our, our country and the, 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 the world as how to best educate our children is beyond me. Uh, what would give me an enormous amount of confidence in this administration is if they set out on a national search to find people who don't have the, all the answers but have something to contribute of value to trying to figure out something that no one's ever accomplished uh, and then demonstrate the capacity to both identify who those people are and attract them to New York City. This is the greatest city in the country and in the world. It's why I've spent my entire life here. Um, the fact that, um, that we're not a magnet for talent at this point, um, uh, but rather uh, seems smug in our belief set that we, we know everything there is to know and if we simply hire people who are currently in our schools or, or more to the point recently who have retired but who we can coax out of retirement, that's not going to get us to where we need to be. And what about for this next generation of young teachers? Hopefully some of them are sitting in this room right now. What kind of a difference can they make? They're up against a lot. New tests, common core. Um, uncertainty in, in the administration, a lot of politics, co-locations, charter schools, battles over early education, yet they're, you know, they're trying to figure it out. What, what lessons, what, what can they take away from this? What difference can they make? Some, some would have you believe that it's never been harder to be a teacher. Uh, I will tell you that it's always been challenging uh, to be a teacher. Uh, uh, the, to figure out the best way to help the students in your charge, regardless of uh, their other life circumstances or what happened to them on the way to school or how they're feeling that particular day, uh, to move to a place they've never been and realize their full potential is one of the most complex, challenging things to be. Uh, it, it's the reason I've spent a, a career in public education trying to um, to understand the nature of that work because it is so complex uh, that it's, it's been something that, um, that I've been able to spend over 40 years uh, thinking about and perfecting. I'm still working on becoming a better teacher. Uh, what I will say to you is I've never regretted the decision to go into teaching. My daughter uh, is a teacher in an international high school up in the Bronx. Uh, and uh, I greatly admire her uh, for the career decision she made and love the fact uh, that she uh, followed this passion I have and, and it's something that we can share with each other. Um, and uh, uh, I would encourage you uh, to continue along this path. You've, you've chosen uh, one of the most challenging uh, assignments uh, that you could possibly have selected, but you've also chosen one of the most rewarding. There's not a night's sleep uh, that I lose because I wonder uh, whether the, what I've devoted my life to um, uh, has had any meaning. Uh, people I've worked with through the years come up to me, my students, on a regular basis and, and, and tell me how important it was. Uh, and, uh, um, and I'm extremely proud of that. And. Uh, and of you for uh, agreeing to take on this challenge. So thank you. Thank you, um, Eric, and thank you also, Liz, those of you who just joined us. Uh, you tuned into the Perkins Platform. We're doing a, a special broadcast today from uh, the campus of Teachers College Columbia University, and we're live at Millbank Chapel here on the corner of 120th and Broadway. 
Uh, we're going to open it up uh, for questions. Um, at this point, uh, we have a number of people who uh, have called in, and so Eric, the uh, uh, dashboard here has uh, lit up with uh, some of our callers. So um, we're going to uh, balance this. We have we're going to take uh, individuals uh, here, and we're going to just go back and forth between um, our call-in and our uh, live audience here. So I'm going to start as and ask. We have microphones uh, posted um, throughout the room. Uh, ask that if you can line up with your questions. Uh, we have a caller that's been waiting for a while. We're going to take this first call. Um, it's a caller uh, from Denver, Colorado, it looks like. Um, we're going to see if we can get him on here. Caller? Hi. I, yeah, good afternoon. Uh, this question is for Mr. N Mr. Nadelstern. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned your new book about lessons learned. And I wanted to ask, you know, with the many lessons you've learned over decades of experience, how did you choose from those lessons and weigh and determine the, the 10 that really, you know, had the most weight, were the most valuable to those engaging in this really challenging work of improving schools? How did you choose what was going to go into that book? Well, I'd like to say that uh, when I sat down to write Lessons Learned, I had hundreds of lessons, but I guess I'm a slow learner. Um, I came up with 10. And that became the, both the title and the substance of the book. And uh, the more I delved into those 10, the more convinced I was that those were the 10 important lessons that I wanted to share with others. Okay, and we have someone who is standing here in the audience. Hi, I'm Paula Rosen. I'm a graduate from the Doctor Club here at the And I want to just thank all three of you for very telling program. My question is this attention between which is a terrific publication that you might want to look into uh, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, and thank you for that question, Paula. Um, I, I, I know Aviation High School. My school is located a few blocks from it, and I know the good work there, and uh, for many years uh, was aware of the work of the principals there uh, and appreciate what they've done. Um, public education has in recent years not done a good job with uh, vocational training, which we now call career technical education, uh, really for two reasons. The first is uh, 
those kinds of careers are changing so quickly that it's actually hard to train students for jobs that might not exist just a few years out, but primarily because it costs so much to remain current and up-to-date uh, in those uh, industries. Um, I remember a, 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 crazy a crazy conversation uh, at one of Joel's cabinet meetings where uh, we were talking about closing a high school in Brooklyn and uh, one of the folks around the table in the cabinet said, we can't close that high school. It has the last cosmetology program uh, offered in the New York City public schools. And uh, the person next to me, an MBA from Stanford, uh, whispered, did he say cosmology? Uh, so, you know, we, we still have schools that are training students to be beauticians uh, and to do nails uh, when uh, we really ought to be training them for things like the aeronautics industry, the space industry, uh, the computer industry, and uh, you know even uh, refrigeration and computer-assisted drafting and uh, uh, how to make eyeglasses, because uh, I noticed that uh, uh, at least a third of the people in the room are wearing eyeglasses, and I suspect some of the rest of us are wearing contact lenses. Uh, so you know that industry is not going to, but schools really have not had the resources necessary to, to gear up to be able to do that in any uh, serious and effective way over a prolonged period of time, which is part of the reason those, those schools went to the wayside. Okay, we have uh, someone who's been waiting from Los Angeles. Caller? Uh, yes, this is Dr. Paul Green from the University of California, Riverside. Uh, thank you, Dr. Nettlestone, and Thank you, Ms. Willen, um, and let me also say uh, thank you, Dr. Perkins, uh, for this uh, for this wonderful show and this this particular program. The state of California, um, in many ways, has some interesting connections in terms of what New York is dealing with, but yet unique connections because we are experiencing some tremendous shifts in terms of our lower schools as well as higher education. So, with that, my question uh, for you. Um, Dr. Nelstern, is what roles have growing racial segregation and economic inequality played in impeding or advancing educational reform and educational opportunity for youth and children from racial and ethnic communities uh, in New York? Again, because there are some differences, but certainly some connections here. And I'm asking this because uh, Diane Ravitch, and I'm sure you're familiar with her recent work of Reign of Error, notes that our urban schools are in trouble because of concentrated poverty and racial segregation which make for a toxic mix and public schooling in itself she emphasizes is in a crisis only so far as society is and only so far as this new narrative of crisis has destabilized it so no one in education uh, can can ever move too far away from the issues of race and poverty there there are issues that um, uh, that underlie uh, the interaction of all of us in the community. Uh, and certainly, schools are no exception. What I will tell you 
I'll give you good news and then I'll give you bad news. The good news is that um, the New York City public schools uh, have a more integrated mix overall of students by race than most large urban school districts where uh, white families have abandoned the public schools and uh, uh, taken refuge in uh, private schools. Uh, that's happened to a much lesser extent uh, in New York City. The bad news is that they concentrate in certain neighborhoods uh, defined by uh, the ability to, uh, to purchase real estate uh, so that uh, to the extent that our schools have um, admissions policies based on what communities they're in, uh, the school populations very closely track the, the racial segregation in the city based on uh, the cost of property. Uh, 199 on uh, the west side of Manhattan uh, is surrounded by co-ops uh, where families have spent anywhere from two to six million dollars. Uh, for the privilege of living in that co-op and sending their children to 199. Uh, if you w went to the South Bronx or Jamaica or, uh, in Queens or Central Brooklyn, you'd find a very different uh, student population. Uh, I don't think we're more integrated uh, today uh, at the elementary and middle school level uh, than we were uh, 60 years ago when the Supreme Court handed uh, down that landmark uh, decision in Brown versus uh, Topeka. Part of the reason uh, we're segregated, of course, has to do with housing. And I've got a, a, an opinion around a policy that could address that, but it's controversial, and that is, if it were up to me, I would open admission in every elementary middle school and high school everywhere in the city. Uh, kids in the South Bronx ought to have a chance to apply for a seat at 199 on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, and schools ought to admit students on the basis of lottery, uh, just as charter schools do, not on the basis of your parents' ability to uh, afford pricier real estate. Uh, I've got a feeling that any uh, mayor and chancellor who attempted that uh, would first have to hire bodyguards uh, and then uh, find themselves out of office in a pretty short period of time. Now, the other thing that that flies in the face of is the idea of community. If we knew how to make every school terrific, we would have. Uh, and so it has to be one school at a time, but in the meantime, we don't want to sentence generations of students to have to go to the local school down the block if it's a failed school those students want to have the same opportunity to go to a school that's more successful. Uh, it's even more pernicious than that. If we had time, I'd go on to explain how uh, the rules governing union contracts and governing district policy have set up a situation where we're underfunding. Even today, continue to underfund schools in our poorest neighborhoods by $2,000 a kid as compared to schools in middle-class neighborhoods. I have a question right here. Hi, um, first of all, uh, Mr. Nixon, I just want to 
thank you for uh, the very interesting conversation. Um, I'm another guy, uh, uh, program at Queens College. Um, I'm actually involved in international slash high school, at least school of international studies in Queens. Um, and I've had the privilege of meeting students from many different cultures and backgrounds. Um, I guess my question to you is, yes, as future educators, uh, we can expose to the Common Core, uh, the Danielson Rubric. There's so many systems out there, and there's so much controversy surrounding these systems. Um, so, and then when these students coming in, uh, especially on ELLs, they're they're coming in. They're not. They're coming from an uh, environment that that already they have the burden of carrying those issues. But on top of that, when they come into our system, they also unknowingly have exposure to a lot of this pressure with uh, testing standards. So, as current future educators, not only in the ESL field, but in other content areas, what advice would you have for us to be sort of a buffer so that students aren't overburdened? It's, it's, it's an excellent question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, a few uh, months ago, I was fortunate enough to be on a cruise ship in the Caribbean uh, because my wife, Paula, who's here today, is a famous quilt artist who occasionally works cruise ships uh, so that the two of us can see the world together. Um, and uh, I forget where I was, lounging on a deck chair or in the casino, I can't remember. And I got an email from the principal of your school, Ben Sherman, who said, I'd love you to come out to East-West uh, to see what we've done with the autonomy uh, you pioneered for us. Uh, and so I'm scheduled to visit your school later this month. So hope to see you there. Uh, great school leaders absorb pain. They don't inflict it. And so my expectation of great principals like Ben Sherman is that they will do everything they can short of breaking the law and going to jail to create enough space for great teachers like you to do your best work with students. Similarly, you're the leader of your classroom. And your job is not to pass things on um, unedited, but your job is to uh, absorb the things that come your way uh, and to do everything within your power to give your students the best education they can possibly have. Uh, in the great schools, that's what happens. In lousy schools, there are always great teachers like you who do that in their classrooms, and every other teacher knows who they are. Uh, it's, it's, it's what we need to do on a much larger scale if we're going to be successful. Okay, we have another question.
So thank you again. That that that's a terrific question. It's also really depressing. <laughs> So, so first the guidance question, and I'm going to say this acknowledging that I had an assist, that in a school of 400, I had an assistant principal in charge of guidance and three counselors in a school of 400 kids, specifically for that sort of thing. But I think it needs to go beyond the counselors, you know, be, and because in some schools the counselors are able to do a great job, in some they're not, they're overwhelmed by the number of students they have, or they spend the entire day one-on-one. -on -one with students behind closed doors. It's going to work into the curriculum. Uh, when I was a principal, we pioneered a course called Personal and Career Development and made that part of the syllabus. Students had to learn what, how to apply to college and how to think about it, and what was possible and what was not possible. And we started that in the ninth grade when they came into the school, not in the 11th or 12th grade when they were leaving us. I agree with you, it's critical. I want to also mention, I'm very careful in the way I describe what I expect students to do after high school. I talk about some form of post-secondary education. For many students, it'll be a four-year college. For many students, it'll be a two-year college. For many students, it'll be a career training program. Um, I don't want to limit uh, what that training uh, looks like, but I will say simply graduating from high school is insufficient. You need more formal training in order to succeed in this country in the 21st century. I just want to add that the guidance counselor issue is a crisis nationally as well. The, um, we've done a lot of stories on this. The ratio in a lot of places is 1,000 to 1. California has a particularly large crisis with this. But it is definitely something I have encountered as a, public, a New York City public school parent as well. They're, they're absolutely overwhelmed. And the only way I've ever been able to get anything done is by absolutely showing up in their office and refusing to leave until something happens, until I get some, some resolution. And that's not even around the, the college preparation issues. That's just about, might be simply about being placed in the wrong class or having a completely messed up schedule. Lest, lest we believe this is a new issue. When I was a high school student, I never once saw a guidance counselor. My folks gave me 20 bucks to apply to NYU, and I pocketed the money and went to City College, like everyone else in my neighborhood. Um, nothing to complain about. Got a decent education, and it was free, which is more than I can say for most of us today. But uh, even back then, uh, counseling was not what it should have been. I agree, and I just want to add, and I have another question based on just the thing that bothers me is that the climate uh, climate conference on zero climate is the popular part, the regional part, and not given much more credit on the educational part either. But the other thing is, how do you see yourself addressing professions? Because, giving you an example, I have people who think that they're going to be certified in your city 
to make the deeds of the They do not understand that once they become sort of a learning state, that they paid on an hourly basis, and they might at some time in the future make 15 to 17 dollars an hour. And then they become trashed because they don't have the time and they're too exhausted to then go on to get the next level. And the nursing home charges or places they work on three So I'm going to. I'm going to rely on, on the previous answer, and that is a course in personal and career development, internships that allow students to go out and actually work in areas that they may want to uh, pursue, uh, and where some of my students, we had such a program, some of my students would tell me, the important thing about what I learned is I don't want to be a nurse, or I don't want to be a doctor, or I don't want to, you know, the, neg the, the negative is as, as important as as finding the things you do want to do. But it's critical to build those things into the curriculum, and we haven't done it well enough at the high school level. Looks like we have a question over here. Yes, um, I'm a student of the Department of Education, and I'm interested in the Department of Education. 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 Can you speak into the mic? Oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if possible, thank you. I'm so sure. I'm interested in the Department of Education. I'm interested in the Department and uh, I'm now retired, but I worked for many years in special ed. And one of the problems, one of the biggest problems that we had was absolutely no parent involvement whatsoever. And every case, for instance, when we have a teacher um, parent conferences, of 90 children, six parents would show up. And I'm just wondering if anything is being done about reaching out to the communities, especially in communities where uh, there's not a very much uh, help on the part of the parents for their children uh, to uh, get them involved more with helping to educate their children at home. Were you a high school special ed teacher? I was teaching kindergarten uh, to ninth. I'm a music teacher. Oh. So, um, going back to the days of putting on my principal hat, which still in many ways remains my primary persona. I, I was principal for 17 years, uh, just about half my career, uh, and a job I, I, I think I loved more than any of the others I've been fortunate enough to have in public education. Uh, what we discovered was when we called parents into school to attempt to co-opt them into supporting the school's goals for their children, we were not as successful as when we offered services and classes to the parents themselves. Not to mention free food and coffee that really helped. Exactly right. So, well, yeah, if, uh, for instance, uh, when I was a principal, I taught a parent ESL class. That brought the parents in. We had computer workshops. That brought parents in. We had immigration counseling because of the nature of our population. That brought parents in. And as Liz points out, if you serve dinner, you get even more parents. So um, The community school models have been trying to address that all over the country with some, with some success. It's another one of the models. Of course, the reason I asked you whether you taught high school is the older the student gets, the more the student works overtime to separate the school from, from their families. Uh, I know I, I was in I was such a student, um, but I agree with you. Schools got to do a, a much better job of, of connecting to students' families. When I taught that ESL course, 
one of the most gratifying experiences I had as a principal is when the students would come to me the next day to find out how their parents were doing in my class. <laughs> question over here. Hi. I'm uh, James, you live in a master's student. I recently read an article about uh, a new type of school, uh, I think the most famous one is called P-TECH in Brooklyn. Yep. They're all over the, they're opening a bunch of them all over the place now. That's the one that Obama went to. Yeah. yeah. Um, Got a lot of attention. Yeah, so basically uh, schools that offer the traditional four-year high school or an additional two-year associate degree option after that from the high school, where then students would get that and go on also have job offers from certain uh, companies that are affiliated with the schools. So I just wonder, uh, how do you see those types of schools having an impact on the current education situation? You know, it's a brilliant idea. Uh, if you go back to the 30s and 40s, Community colleges were part of the K-12 system in California. Uh, my high school was on a community college campus, and my students had the opportunity to take college courses while they were in high school for high school and college credit. And it was, it was an enormous benefit, uh, first because they had advanced placement college credit, secondly it, it benefited my uh, uh, budget because I didn't have to offer anything, everything. Uh, the college helped me fill in uh, spot areas. And thirdly, if the students are already going to high school on a college campus, uh, then you've already solved the problems we heard about earlier where students don't know about college, they don't see themselves uh, as college material. So the more PTECs, uh, the better. Uh, I, I suspect Liz knows more about it. Well, than it, I it involves industry um, buy-in and cooperation, and, and this is, in this case, it's, they're working very closely with IBM. But it's a, it's a great example of when um, uh, the business community is willing to partner and be involved. I mean, what, what the most appealing thing that it's offering and, and getting a lot of people excited about is that kids are coming out and immediately getting jobs. And in this kind of economy, that matters hugely. So I think that's a, a really interesting model to watch. And they are among the um, many innovations I hear about day after day that's going to solve everything. So the Eric here apparently has not been able to solve just everything, although he seems to have tried valiantly. I will, I will, <laughs> well, I will say about that. Uh, when my friend Tom Sobel retired as Commissioner of Education in New York State, uh, he's not only uh, a colleague and a friend, Tom was in the position I'm currently in at Teachers College uh, before I was, um, and pioneered that position of professor of practice. When he retired after 41 years in public education, uh, I remember very clearly what he said in his speech was, some things take more than one lifetime to achieve, and take some solace in that I have. We just spoke yesterday on the new tutor program, uh, Summer Principals Academy. So we're really excited to be starting our studies here uh, in a couple of months. Yeah, a couple of months. Um, I have a question um, in regards to leadership as well as people support. Um, one of the things that um, uh, you had mentioned was the whole idea of trying to look at models from other uh, parts of the country of and you know, attracting that here. And one of the things that I've seen is that in some districts across the country, when it comes to leadership, uh, they make a split. Meaning, uh, they have two leaders in the school: one that deals with the organizational functions and the management, 
and one that has uh, not to use uh, the words pedagogical Um, so what can, what are your ideas about how to buffer the system against that kind of uncertainty? 
the schools better, or really concerned about political aspect of it? I mean, sure. Sure. Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, here, a bunch of different thoughts, but here, here's, uh, here's how I'd uh, respond to that question. Um, there's always going to be turnover and turmoil uh, in, in every organization. Um, I think it's up to uh, the people in the schools and leadership positions in the schools to even out those uh, waves in terms of the, the ripples that will invariably uh, come down to the school. It used to be through the fax machine, now it's in email form. So that if the principal gets an email saying, you know, we're now doing X, Y, Z. You don't immediately call a faculty meeting and, and generate the, um, the anxiety that you're feeling. Would you figure out a way that your school can deal with the anxiety uh, and still not disrupt the important things that teachers are doing in classrooms? There's no more important lesson to principals than your, your teachers are your class and your job is to create the space for them to do the best work, regardless of what's happening up here. Things will always happen up here. Um, it happened when it was, there was a board of education and there were uh, seven lay individuals who were acting out their fantasies on the Department of Education on a daily basis and uh, there'd be crazy directives from Central uh, and it's happening in an era of mayoral control. It will never not happen. And because education affects every family and every voter, uh, we're never going to have a politically free system where the politicians don't get involved in what happens in schools and where uh, uh, the people in the schools at some level don't have to be politicians. Uh, yeah. Hi. Um, thank you for such a wonderful and insightful session. My name is Charles, I'm the first of the commissioner in my apologies. Um, anyway, my question is around the absent teacher reserve. Um, and I was wondering whether you were, I'm not really sure whether you were in the um, a tweet when the decision was made to turn teachers into these uh, absent teachers uh, pool. Um, the, what was the rationale behind it? That's my first question. My second question is around the cost. Did, did anyone ever look at the cost-benefit analysis? Sure. Surrounding this? Um, just one more question. <laughs> In terms of school closure, I understand Thanks again for both the compliment, the comment, and the question. Um, uh, yes, it, it, there was thought given. 
for that reason, we phased out the existing schools. We didn't simply close them. The schools had the opportunity to graduate the students who were currently there. We just didn't send them any new ones. So it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wasn't as if all of a sudden a student didn't have a school. The thinking around um, what, the, what the effects would be on the surrounding schools was less thoughtful than it needed to be. It needed to be more thorough and scientific and we didn't do very much of that, and so uh, the, there were unintended consequences. But I, but I will say this, in education and beyond, failed organizations don't reinvent themselves. Um, just because the government gave uh, General Motors and others hundreds of millions of dollars doesn't mean that they didn't have to recall 13 million cars the other day. Uh, failed organizations never reinvent themselves. For years, we were pouring good money after bad into schools. The, the, the prevailing thought was, oh, the school is not doing well, here's more money, see if you can do better, which in, in effect made perverse consequences uh, where instead of rewarding success, we were rewarding failure. Uh, and so we decided to change that uh, and acknowledge that some places just simply weren't going to get better by putting in a new principal or by changing some of the staff. The ATR pool. The ATR pool, uh, for those of you in other parts of the country or in the audience who don't know what we're talking about, teachers who were accessed from their schools, either because the school closed or the principal cut the line, were no longer guaranteed a placement in the system. They weren't forced placed in other schools, but they had to actually actively go out and seek a position in one of the 1,700 schools in the system and convince a principal or a hiring committee that they were a better candidate than others. That marked a, a, a significant change from when I was a principal. And at the beginning of every semester, the superintendent's office would you know, send me a math teacher who had no idea what my school was about, who didn't share the philosophy, who didn't particularly want to work with English language learners, didn't even know there were English language learners there, but who insisted they were entitled to a job. And because I was the person I am, I would turn, I would turn the person back to the superintendent's office and threaten to do this or that or the other thing and manage to protect my school. Weaker, newer principals were not able to do that. And so uh, by the time Rudy Crew came around, we had what he, what he rightfully referred to as the dance of the lemons, less incompetent teachers, going from school to school to school because uh, we were forcing them on unsuspecting schools and because principals had learned it was much easier to access a teacher than to go through the, the labor-intensive process of firing them. Uh, the problem with the absentee teacher reserve is we weren't creative on how to resolve that. We simply said the teachers in there had an equal opportunity to find jobs elsewhere. What I would have done is I would have offered severance packages. And knowing the, the dire circum financial circumstance most teachers are in, it would not have caught this, cost the system a lot to eliminate that pool by saying, if you can't find a job within the next six months and you want to look elsewhere outside the city, we will give you six months salary. It would have eliminated the absentee teacher reserve pool overnight. 
I, I championed that cause at the cabinet level and was unsuccessful. Yes, please step to the mic if you have. By the way, that question you asked about the closing school, I mean, it was a very, very good point um, about how much thought went into it. I, I was at Tilden High School in um, way out in East Flatbush on the last, the last couple of days. I decided to spend some time at the school and see what it was like when you close down a large failing high school. And I am remiss in not going back to find out if the kids are doing any better now under the new system. But it was chaotic. There, were, there was a set of triplets and all three of them were failing the English language, uh, could not pass the English language reasons. And they had no resource. They weren't going to be able to graduate. They, had, they couldn't go somewhere else. One of them, they were getting older. There were some kids there who were 20, 21, and they were looking at going to a last resort, um, sort of a night school to get a, a GED. Um, it was, it was terrible for many of the people in the community and for many of the families, and a lot of them did not have the resources to figure out what next to do with their kids. So I've actually been meaning to follow up and find out if the smaller schools they put in there are doing any better, and I don't know what's happened to those kids if they ever even got degrees. We have time for one more question, and we're going to take it here. I'm tired from the teacher and the school system, and like the idea. I will, I will tell you <clears throat> that in my current role as director of the Summer Principals Academy at Teachers College, uh, last year for the first time in the nine-year history of the program, uh, a majority of students were uh, minority students. Uh, so we are trying to make an impact in the ranks of principals. We graduate 90 students a year. It's not a local program. Students come to us uh, from 68 cities across America. Uh, we are focusing on urban education reform, uh, but we do everything we can financially and otherwise to attract excellent minority uh, applicants who will make outstanding principles. But that word lifetime commitment, that's a lot. That's kind of scary <laughs> in well, any profession. Well, we'd like to thank, um, again, our um, guest uh, host here um, this, this evening, uh, Liz Willen, and our special guest, uh, Eric Nagelstern, who is um, the, a professor of practice here at Teachers College and director of the Summer Principals Academy. And so for those of you who may have uh, joined in late and missed a portion of this broadcast, about five minutes after conclusion, you'll be able to join us um, in archive and listen to the program in its entirety. Uh, we'd like to invite all of you uh, who are here and who do not have a copy of 10 Lessons from New York City Schools. Uh, Mr. Nato Stern will be here and have uh, to sign copies and have copies available uh, for purchase of uh, 10 Lessons from New York City Schools.
Um, we also like uh, to invite you to join us in a couple of weeks. The next broadcast of Perkins Platform on April 23rd at 2 p.m., also available on archive later, uh, where we have invited um, Dr. Warren Simmons from the Annenberg Institute of School Reform and Dr. Jesse Register from the Nashville uh, Public Schools, who is the Director of Schools. And so, um, as we um, end this program, I'd uh, just like to say again a very special thank you to all that are here in person and those joining us. Until next time, go well. Folks, just to clarify,